We're in Genesis chapter 15. We've been going through the life of Abram. And uh, this is definitely uh, the center uh, section of the story. It's right in the middle of the story. And theologically, it is the heart and center of what God wants to communicate by the life of Abram. And it's Labor Day. Can I get an amen? And look at you. You came to church. I mean, a lot of Americans, they're like, Labor Day, I'm taking a break from church. No more church. You guys, I'll tell you what, y'all are righteous. I like that. It's Labor Day. This is the weekend where we rest, and we don't have to work tomorrow, most of us, and, and we get to uh, uh, have a great time, and, and we're having a good time. My parents are in town from Oklahoma City, my mom and dad, so we've been, they got in Friday afternoon, so we've been doing y'all and y'all a lot and, and everything like that, and tomorrow we gotta, we're going to grill and chill, get a little filet mignon, amen, a cold beverage like a Coca-Cola Classic. You know, and we're going to relax and have a good time. So it's great. And you know what? Uh, a lot of times when you talk to people, when you run into them, and you're like, how are you doing? You know, you never mean for them to be like really honest with you, right? You don't really want to know exactly how someone's doing. But you ask, how, of course, I'm a pastor. That's the way I am, right? Uh, but that you say, how are you doing? And, and, and they might say, a lot of times people say, man, I am tired. I know when you ask me, how are you doing, Josh? I try to be honest as a pastor. I try to be forthright. And sometimes I'll say, man, I am flat exhausted. I am really tired. And you don't have to show your hands, but how many of you are really tired? And you need rest. And if you're seeking physical rest, there's things you can do. You can lay on a couch. You can have a drink. You can watch TV. You can take a longer nap. But there's also an exhaustion that's going on in my life, in your life, in a lot of people's lives. And it's even worse than physical exhaustion. It's called spiritual exhaustion. How many of y'all are spiritually tired and spiritually you need rest? You need spiritual peace, not just physical peace. And if you're like me, if God came to me and said to me, which would you rather have, Josh? Would you rather me give you physical rest or spiritual rest, I would take spiritual rest over physical rest any day of the week. I would take peace with God and physical exhaustion any day of the week. There are a lot of people in our culture in particular who have physical rest. They get eight and a half hours of sleep. They eat fruits. They avoid Coca-Cola Classic. They don't go to Chick-fil-A. God help them. They don't eat too many waffle fries. They jog, they run, they get into shape. They're going to go out for the marathon next week or whenever the marathon is. God bless them. They're fit. They got a six-pack. They're buff. They got all the physical rest in the world. And you know what? Deep inside, they feel exhausted. They have no peace. It eludes them. No matter how many things they get, no matter how many toys, no matter how much health and wealth they get, no matter what they get, they still don't understand, why am I tired? Why do I need a drink in a dry and thirsty land? Now listen, you can seek rest. You can seek rest in your friends. You can seek spiritual rest in solitude. You can seek spiritual rest, but you cannot find spiritual rest outside of a living knowledge of God. You cannot do it. Spiritual rest and peace with yourself and peace with nature and peace with other people and peace with God cannot come outside of a living knowledge of the awesome God of the universe. So get your... Physical rest, that is a good thing. But let me tell you something. What has real value for the present life and the life to come is spiritual rest in God. When we come to Genesis chapter 15, we find a man who is spiritually exhausted. Abram is tired. Not just physically tired. He is spiritually exhausted. In his life, God has called him out of the land of Ur. God has called him out of the city that he knew. God has called him away from his idols and his paganism and his barbaric ways with his father. God has brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans into a land. And God has promised him that I will give you land. I will give you children. I will give you a nation. And Abram believed and he followed God. 
In the last few chapters, we've looked at the different dimensions of a man who's living by faith, despite his radical failure in basically pimping out his wife. He restores his relationship and fellowship to God by coming back to the altar. And we learn great dimensions of faith. In chapter 13, we learned that faith is really waiting on God. Faith can be a passive thing. When you say to God, God, I don't have to do anything. I'm going I'm to I'm I'm lay my hands down and wait for you to keep your promise. And so when Lod's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen start fighting each other, Abram says, hey, God's going to take care of me. He's going to give me the land he promised. So Lot, if you go left, I'll go right. And if you go right, I'll go left. It doesn't matter. I am waiting on God. And that's what faith is. It's waiting on God to do what only God can do. But you know, that's exhausting. Relationships, wayward, dysfunctional family members. Can I get an amen? I mean, you deal with them in faith and in love, but after a while, you know, those knucklehead lots, they wear you down, they exhaust you. Despite that, he goes on, and in chapter 15, we learn not just about a passive faith, but an active faith. Now, we learn in chapter 15 that faith sometimes gets up and goes to work for people. Sometimes faith has to go rescue people. Sometimes faith is fighting the good fight of faith. So in chapter 13, you got passive faith where you wait on God. Chapter 15, you got active faith where you go and do stuff for people. But here in chapter 15, we have a third dimension, and maybe the most important dimension of faith. It is a resting faith, a faith that rests in the quality of God, that absorbs and takes up the sufficiency of God into the heart, and it gives us spiritual rest. Does your faith rest in God? Is your life defined by resting in God? Come to Genesis 15 and verse 1 with that probing question. And the first three words are so great. Don't, you know, it's so easy to skip these things. And, but this is so great. It says the first three words. I love this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. You could underline after these things. All that's happened. All his life has been. One big, exhausting, inconvenient journey to what seems like a... A crazy plan, a 75-year-old man with a wife who can't have children, and God saying, you're going to have land and children, even though you're 75 years old. After these things, you feel Abram's exhaustion in that. You feel it in the things. Now, I've heard that sometimes wives ask their husbands, this never happened to me, by the way, but I've heard that sometimes uh, a husband might be walking around the house and with a frown and not saying much, and she asks, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you talking? And I've heard that there are men who actually say this, not me, I'm a pastor, I'm perfect, come on. But I've heard that men sometimes say, I got things on my mind. How many of y'all got things on your mind? See, that's what weighs you down. All those things. Abram's tired and he's got things on his mind. And what he needs is a fresh word from God. It says here in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. A vision in the Bible is different than a dream, by the way. A dream has images. A vision is, is the word. It's revelation. It's, it, God is way more concerned about words than he is images. He's way more concerned about revelation than he is anything else. And so, in a vision, God says to Abram, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. We ask ourselves, how can I have spiritual rest? How can I have a a faith that rests in God? What you have to do is confess the greatness of God. And in particular, confess very specific things. Number one, confess this, God is my shield. Confess that. Believe that. That phrase, I am your shield, has two dimensions to it that are very important. And in our confession, God is my shield, has two aspects to it. The first one is the supremacy of God. God's high and exalted sovereign position in our life and in the world, the great I am God. You see, underline I am, that's supreme. 
That's the I am God that came to Moses and said, I'm going to set the people free. And Moses is like, well, when I go to him, what do I say? What's your name? And God says, all you need to tell him is that the I am sent you. That is the sovereign, existing, alive, living, personal creator God. Jesus himself, when he wanted to emphasize the fact that he was divine in human flesh, he had the great seven I am's in the gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I'm the same God that set Israel free from the Pharaoh. I am the good shepherd. Even in John chapter 8, Jesus emphasizes Abram. He says, before Abram was, I am. Jesus was saying, I was God before Abram even existed. And he goes on to tell him, and Abram saw me. And he longed for the day that I would come. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Abraham knew him. And Abram knew Jesus. Because here comes the Lord and he says, Abram, I am. I am God. I am supreme. But Abram already knew that. Abram's whole life has been one big uh, convention of the supremacy and sovereignty of God. Abram's become very familiar with the supremacy of God, the sovereign plan of God. That's all his life has been is walking by faith. Okay, I know you're in charge. But you see, God is not only supreme, he is sufficient. When you say God is my shield, you're saying God is supreme and God is sufficient. The I am is my shield. And one without the other and your spiritual rest breaks down. But when you have both of those things on your mouth, on your lips, in your heart, in your feet, then you will find rest. God is sufficient. Supreme, he's sovereign over me. He is God, and I am not. But he's also sufficient. He is my shield. There's an old Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Septuagint, right? The Septuagint is an ancient translation of the Hebrew. And uh, Jewish people who lived all around the world who didn't know the original Hebrew, they had the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And what the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this verse says, is God says, I am covering you like a child. Don't you like that? I don't think that's a very accurate translation by the Septuagint, by the way, because I think in the Masoretic text, it's a more military context. It's a martial word that's being used here. But I like the fact that the Jewish people around the world interpreted this as a covering like a child. All of us parents can relate to that because we have two relationships with our children. One of supremacy. Can I get an amen, Dad? My relationship with my girls is sometimes, look, here's the deal. I am the boss. My position is above you. You are the child. I am the adult. I'm not going to become a child like you. And you're not going to become an adult just yet. And I've got boundaries, and I've got guidelines, and this is how you need to understand me as my leader. And parents, listen, young parents, we've got a lot of young parents and little babies. Listen, you have to be supreme in the relationship. You've got to discipline your kids. You've got to show them the boundaries. You've got to, when they step out of those boundaries, you need to discipline them. It can't be all giving them toys and, you know, whatever they want. You've got to be supreme. But you see, you also have to be sufficient. Because the same daddy that says, I am master of the living room. I am king of my domain. I'm also the same daddy that puts my arm around him and says, I'm going to be here for you. I'm not going to let anybody get you. There's nobody. No, no, no. Nobody's going to crawl through the window and get you tonight. No, there's no snake underneath the bed. No, 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 no. That thunder and lightning ain't going to get you. Daddy ain't going to let let that get you. I'm your shield. I'm not only supreme, I'm sufficient. You know, some people, their relationship with God is all about supremacy. He just one holy autocrat up there in the sky making rules. And it's those people's job to make sure everybody knows what the rules are. God is supreme. God is sovereign. Stop messing around with his rules. See, And it makes their heart bitter and tough. Other people, their God is only a sufficient God. Oh, God is my kitty cat God, my little domesticated God who does whatever I want. Oh, hello there, little God. You are my teddy bear. You will make me feel better today. 
I thought that was funny, actually, but... You see, God is a lion. <laughs> he's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here he comes, like Aslan in C.S. Lewis's book. He comes and he says, I am a dangerous lion, but I am good. I come to be your shield. That's your God. And that has to be your confession every day. God is is my shield. The I am is my shield. And I love that the, the fact that the Bible picks up on this theme of God being a shield. And there's, there's a plethora of verses in the Bible where, where it's sung about and, it, and it's realized God is my shield. God is my shield. David in particular really loved this idea of thinking about the Lord being a shield. And I don't want to confuse the two stories, David and Abram, but you understand that their stories are somewhat similar and very parallel. And in particular is one reference that David has in Psalm chapter 3. And in Psalm chapter 3, David, the context is he's a king. And he's the king of Israel. And, 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 and there's a rebellion against him, and it's led by his very own son, Absalom. Can you imagine that? How exhausting would that be if your own very own son came up against you and your friends? And you didn't just have one Judas. You had many Judases who doubted your leadership, who doubted where God had put you, who were coming after you. What was once my friend is now chasing me. What was once my very own son is now trying to kill me and replace me on the throne. And David is forced to leave Israel and flee like a two-bit jihadist hiding out in caves. Imagine the embarrassment, the humiliation. And he can't sleep at night. He's exhausted physically. He's exhausted spiritually. And he comes to Psalm chapter 3, and this is what gives him rest. It says in Psalm chapter 3, verses, starting in verse 3, But you, O Lord, see, he's in a cave, man. His own son is trying to kill him. His, his, own, his own people are trying to replace him. And he says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, not just in front of me, but behind me, on my sides, underneath. You are a shield about me, my glory. And the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I laid down, it's not on the slide, I laid down and slept. He can sleep in a cave after realizing that God is his shield. He can sit down in peace because he realizes that God is his shield. You have to confess, God is my shield. Here's three things you can do with this confession. Literally, number one, confess it. Sometimes you've got to go in the bathroom all by yourself and turn on the water so nobody hear you. But say it out loud, God is my shield. God is my shield. Sometimes you've got to pull the car over and turn off the phone and, and ignore the tweet or the, or the text or the, or the message or the email. You've got to pull over your car and you've got to just stop and say with your lips and with your tongue, God is my shield. Sometimes you just need to say it to somebody else and share it and just say, you know what, I'm so tired. Let me tell you something. God is my shield. I don't care that I'm in a cave. I don't care that I'm on the run. I don't care that I'm not getting what I deserve. I don't care that she's not treating me right or he's not doing it right or, or that they're not doing it right or that the church is not doing what she's supposed to I don't care. God is my shield. I don't care if the Republicans are bad or the Democrats are bad or the president is going to Congress or Syria is on fire or we might send missiles or we might not. I don't care. God is my shield. I don't care. you got to say it. Because the one thing that our spiritual enemy is trying to take from our mouth and our heart, the one thing he's trying to take from our marriages, the one thing he's trying to take from our singleness, the one thing he's trying to take from our youth or our elderly age, the one thing our spiritual enemy wants to take away from you is the truth and the fact that the supreme and sufficient God is the shield to all those who believe in him. Let us say to this enemy and his demons and his hordes, God is my shield. Confess it. He's alive. He's living. He's not some dead religion. Some cold, 
uh, uh, concept. He's a reality for those who believe. He is real. He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the Counselor. He is the Comforter. He is the Shield. God is my shield. Confess it. Number two, you got to measure it. you got to measure it. You know, there's different shields. Let's admit it. There's big shields. There's small shields. There's specialized shields. I mean, you could get a shield for battle and like, hey, this shield is like from my right side. And if I get attacked from the right side, I'm going to take that little shield and it'll protect my forearm right here. There's shields in baseball for calves, ankles, braces, elbows, shoulders. You know what I mean? And when they're up at bat, they're like, this shield covers this side of my body. See what I mean? They're shields, different sized shields. But there's also long shields, big shields, shields that cover the whole body. Tell me, how big is your God? Is he a specialized God? Is he just for that one thing that you're dealing with? Is he just for that one request that you have? Is he just for that one need that you have? Or is God everything about everything? He covers everything. Measure it. Don't just confess it. Measure it. Remind yourself. My dad is here. My dad used to say when he taught Sunday school classes that if, if your problems are too big, your God is too small. That's a good word. Amen. You see, God is big. Abram is to realize in this moment of exhaustion and what gives him rest is, man, this ain't just some like little shield. This isn't, this isn't like the police is my shield or the pastor is my shield or, or that person that I respect is my shield or, or my wife is my shield or my husband is my shield or my best friend is my shield. No, 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 no. This is God is my shield and he is a very big God. He's bigger than any problem I have. Measure it. Confess it, measure it. Here's the third thing. Hear it. Hear it. Hear God tell you personally that he is your shield. You can't hear it from a preacher. You can't take down notes and say, okay, I heard it. No, 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 no. You need God to communicate through Scripture to you personally. You need to hear from the Holy Spirit. If you want spiritual rest, then you're going to have to have God directly and immediately communicate to you through the Word. I am your shield. you got to hear that voice. you got to hear it. He says, Abram. He even calls Abram by name. Abram, I am your shield. He calls us by name. Did you know that? And I wonder sometimes, you know, we're so distracted in culture. We got so many TVs and smart TVs and we got all this stuff distracting us. I'm wondering if the reason why sometimes we don't hear God personally talk to us, not audibly. Don't, don't write me an email. You believe in the audible voice of God. Well, he could do that, by the way. Can God do that? Could God say, hello, Josh. He does it all the time. I'm a pastor. But anyways... Along with the angels floating up and down. But, you know, it's all sweet. It's all good. But, not an audible voice. Sometimes in a louder than audible voice. Sometimes in a still small voice that's so loud. But sometimes we can't hear it. We're so distracted. Tell me something. I don't want to know about your prayer life right now. I want to know about your listening life. You've got to be able to hear from God. I remember, <laughs> I remember going to seminary. I was taking eight, 12 hours at a time, and I was a full-time pastor with all that goes with that. Small church, church politics, the whole thing. Nobody liked me. You know, the sermons were horrible. I mean, they were worse than now, right? I mean, they were bad sermons. Uh, you know, I'm trying to do essays and sermons and preaching really bad sermons. And, and, of course, there's controversy because I'm a controversial figure. But anyways... I'm exhausted, and I'm studying, and I'm staying up at light, and there's this one particular exam. It's in Hebrew, and let me tell you something. I'm from Oklahoma, so I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Can I get an amen? Y'all know this. I don't have to tell you that, right? So, I mean, when I study Hebrew, I got to study for hours, and I got to mix, like, coffee with Coca-Cola Classic, you know, and it had a special machine and a special formula, you know. It was near alcoholic, but not quite. I'm cranking it in, but I'm so tired. I mean, I'm just like, my eyes are swollen. My lips are ingrown. I, I'm not, I just. 
And I'm sitting there, and I'm going to go to town. I'm going to go study for this big, important exam. I'm going to go study for this big deal. And it was like, it's about 1030 at night, and it was like God said, not in an audible voice, don't email me, but he said, as clear as day, go to sleep. Your wife needs you to go to sleep. Your kids need you to go to sleep. You need to rest. I got your back. I'm your bodyguard. So I was like, good enough for me. I went to sleep. You know what I mean? Woke up, I wake up the next day, and, and, and I'm like, well, you know, and I literally go to class by faith, not by sight. I walk into the Hebrew classroom, Dr. Pratico, and, and I go in there, and, and I sit down, and he starts lecturing. And I'm like, man, for a smart guy, this guy's an idiot, because we're not supposed to be lecturing. We're supposed to be taking an exam. So I lean over to the guy next to me. I'm like, dude, what's up? Where, when's the exam start? And he goes, what exam? I was like, the exam today, the big exam. And he goes, dude, that's like in a week. I was like, it's a miracle. You have no idea. Like, God changed history and, like, syllabuses and stuff. He changed the whole schedule so I could get some sleep. It was one of the best days of my seminary career. You see, God, he tells us. He's talking to you. This is not some detached God. This is up close, like hand-to-hand God, he is the shield, and he calls us by name. Is he talking to you, and are you listening? You see, you've got to confess it. You have to measure it. You've got to hear it. God is my shield, even in the cave, even when there's no money, even when you're out of love. God is my shield. But that's not the only thing. Going back to Genesis chapter 15 in this stunning divine human dialogue, one of the few and really the first time that there is a dialogue between God and Abram. Usually it's been God speaking the whole time, but now Abram's going to talk. But you see, God says, fear not. Important to note that fear not, that phrase is used 365 times in the Bible. So one for every day of the year. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And what God's saying is like, listen, man, that Escalade I gave you, I'm going to pay that off for you. The credit card charges that you spent down there and your dumb decision in Egypt, I'm going to pay that off for you. I'm going to provide for you a great reward. It's a monetary term that he's using. Your reward shall be very great. But in verse 2, Abram has in faith a question. And by the way, you can, you can come up with questions for God in faith. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing unbelieving about questioning uh, a certain aspect or asking for detail. And that's what, God, that's what Abram does in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar, Eleazar of Damascus. He picked up this guy and in ancient Near Eastern world, if you didn't have children, you could give it to a slave, and that, that would be the dude. And he's like, is that, is that your plan? I mean, I don't have a child. I'm getting really old. You know what I mean? Viagra has not been invented yet. I thought that was funny. Maybe blasphemous. Okay, verse 3. <laughs> it's Labor Day weekend. Come on. I mean, let's, let's roll with it. It's party time. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. Is that what you want me to do? Because that's what I'll do. If that's how it's all going to work out. But you see, God comes and says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Literally in the Hebrew, out of your loins. And he brought him outside, love this part. He brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Earlier in Genesis, it was the dust. 
Now it's the stars. God has said, look down at the dust. That's how many descendants you'll have. Now he's saying, look up at the stars. That's how many descendants you'll have. Of course, dispensational theology says the dust is the Jews and Israel and the stars is the church. That's poppycock and boulder dash. We, we don't believe in that. We, he's just saying different ways of, of, of telling Abram, listen, you're going to have a son. Out of you will come a real and literal son and your descendants are going to be so numerous. Look at the stars, Abram. All summer we've been going outside and we go outside at nighttime and look up at the stars because we're from Oklahoma City and we're city people. And so we go out in Washington and you can see more stars than we've ever seen before. We didn't even know there were the stars like that. We go out and my girls have been educating me like, Daddy, did you know that you can see approximately 3,000 stars in this particular side of the sky? But imagine how many stars Abram saw there in the Middle East before electricity, before cities. Imagine how many thousands of stars. Imagine a, imagine a starry night in that area of the world, even today. It's not proof. It's, it's, not, it's not proof that God could do this impossible thing. It's just a perspective. It's like going to communion and, and, and looking at a little piece of bread and, and some wine and saying, you see that? That's what Jesus did for you. Look at this sacrament. It's like a picture. But you see, it's an impossible dream. It's a miracle birth that God is saying. God is saying, miraculously, there will be a miraculous nativity. There will be a miraculous son. And there will be a miraculous people that all belong to you. So astonishingly, in verse 6, here it says, And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. That verse is so important, not only in Genesis, but in all biblical theology and New Testament theology. This is the verse that describes how a person becomes a Christian. So it, it, it does us well to look at it very closely. And for me, maybe to kind of get stuck in a little bit of the details. But look at verse 6 and underline the word believed. The tense in the Hebrew is a perfect tense. It's a hifil, perfect, third masculine, singular verb. See, that Hebrew paid off. I got a good night's sleep. What a perfect verb means is that it's a past action. It's something that's happened in the past but has ongoing results. It's kind of like the New Testament uses perfect verbs to refer to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has been raised. In the past, there was an event called the resurrection, but it has ongoing results. He's still alive, and people are impacted by that past event with ongoing results. It's a past action. He believed the Lord. And it has ongoing results, an active, living, breathing. It's still believing the Lord. He believed the Lord, and then that all-important phrase, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The word righteousness is a legal term. It's a, it's a courtroom term. It means to be acquitted or justified or declared no condemnation, not guilty. That's what righteousness means. And in the Bible, the word righteousness, usually to be acquitted or to be declared righteous by a judge, your life had to be proven to conform to a moral law. In the Old Testament, God has the law of God. And in order to be righteous, your life must conform to that moral law in order for God to declare you righteous. Now, this is all important. Because the only way you can live with God in heaven and with his kingdom and be a part of his life and not a part of hell and darkness and separated forever is you have to be declared righteous to be with God. There's no other way to be with God. What makes this verse so unique in all of biblical theology is it's saying that God gave Abraham righteousness as a gift. That his life didn't have to conform to the moral law, but that by faith in God and his promise, God gives him, as a gift, righteousness. It's very important, though, if you're taking notes and for online references. <laughs> it's very important to understand that faith is not a righteous deed or a righteous merit. It merely is a means or a medium by which Faith is received. Martin Luther was the one who said that faith is an empty hand that receives what only God can give. 
Because he says it's counted to him as righteousness. For accountants, that might mean it's credited or imputed. It's an imputed righteousness. This is a stunning verse. Because it means that the way a person is declared righteous by the gospel, by Old Testament and New Testament, is not by your own performance, but by what God gives you. And ultimately, what the New Testament says is that God gives you not only righteousness, but His righteousness. This is a key to our spiritual rest. In fact, our second confession is, God is my righteousness. Abram, because he believes in a miraculous birth, I find that stunning, a miraculous nativity of a son being born, because he believes in this astonishing fact, he's declared righteous. Now the best commentary, the seminal commentary on Genesis 15 and verse 6 comes from Romans chapter 4. Also Galatians 3, but they're saying the same thing. So we'll just go to Romans chapter 4 and listen to what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 4. This is so important. Now listen, I know this is theologic, theological, but I need you to, I know it's Labor Day weekend, but we're going to get a day of rest tomorrow, so I need you to work hard right now. Because the reason why I'm here is not to be everybody's buddy. I'm not here to be a politician. I'm not here to get members to like me. I'm not here to be some kind of political pastor playing the political church game. The reason why God has called me is because I am a man saved by grace. I am a beggar telling other beggars where to get a cup of cold water. And my job is to tell you what I am on right now. That righteousness comes by faith alone through Jesus Christ. If you're basing your uh, peace with God on anything else, then it's, it's shaky ground. Now, Romans chapter 4, and starting in verse 2. It says, therefore, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, being coming a Christian is not like going to a job and saying, hey, I put in 40 hours, pay me my wages that I'm due. That's not what Christianity is. You don't go to work for God and then say, well, I went to church, so you've got to give me heaven. Or I went and did this religious performance, and now you've got to pay me back for what I've done. That's not how it works. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, a remarkable word applied to Abraham. He's saying Abraham was ungodly. Some of your translations say wicked. Here's a wicked, jacked up, former barbarian who worshiped the moon. And how is he justified? The ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. And he quotes David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That is imputed righteousness. By faith, not through works. And if God gives you the gift of righteousness, your lawless deeds, your ungodliness is covered by faith through grace. It's an amazing thing. Martin Luther talked about this probably the most articulately because he said there is an active righteousness in the Bible. That's when you go and do the law of God. And there's a passive righteousness in which God gives you righteousness as a gift. That's what Jesus earned for us. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 succinctly says what we're trying to communicate. Paul says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, it's not just that God gives you righteousness, it's he gives you Christ's righteousness. He gives you Jesus' perfection. Are you saved by conformity to the law of God? The answer is yes, but not your own conformity. The conformity of Jesus and his righteousness. Is that making sense? This is a big deal when it comes to spiritual rest. Big, big deal. 
one more example. Let me give you one more supplement. Go to Romans yourself in your Bibles. I forgot to add the slide. See, technology, I tell you. Romans chapter 4. Man, this is such good stuff. Oh, if I could swim in it. If I could swim in it and drink it and eat it, I would just swim in it all the time. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Beloved, this is a spiritual narcotic that is legal, and Jesus earned the right for you to get, and I want you to receive it. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver. He's talking about Abram. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justice. Justification, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Everybody say peace. peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word peace means, yep, rest. You see, our relationship with God does not depend upon a performance treadmill. Our relationship with God does not depend upon religion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about a phrase. He called it religionless spirituality. And what he meant by that was religion is you work your way up to God. Religion is I'm going to work hard for God. I'm going to work up to God just like I'm working for the marathon. I'm going to work up to God just like I work for my boss. And the more I work up for God, the bigger my paycheck will be. You see, that is religion. But what spirituality is in the gospel is God comes down in Jesus. And through a miraculous birth and our belief in that promise, he was born in the manger. He lived as a man. He didn't travel more than 100 miles in either way, didn't write any book, and he changed the world because he was God in the flesh. And he said, everybody who believes in me will be saved and will have peace with God. And the issue is not, are you religious? The issue is, do you believe in the promise of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in a miraculous birth of a son? Do you believe in that nativity that that was God coming to save you and be light in your darkness and to die for your sins and to be raised for your new life? Do you believe? Because by that faith alone, you are declared righteous in the presence of God. You see, you don't have to be righteous for God. God has been righteous for you. You don't have to be holy for God. God has been holy for you. You don't, have to, you don't have to be some supreme, heroic, religious person. Jesus has been heroic for you. And the more you absorb that, the more you take that in, the more you say, it's by faith alone that I made right, the more peace you will have. In fact, you'll grow up. You'll actually mature. His identity will begin to take the place of your identity. His righteousness will take the place of your unrighteousness. And from the inside out, the Holy Spirit will come in. And by an immediate communication transformation of the great helper and counselor, you will become a man or a woman of God by grace through faith. But If you try it religiously, you try doing it in your own strength, you try doing your own righteousness, You'll be so exhausted spiritually, and you'll wear everybody out around you. You know how many religious people there are in churches that cause more problems than they do solutions? Do you know how many churches have been split, divided, wide open? Do you know how many pastors have left ministry because people are on this performance treadmill and have this massive expectation of themselves, and therefore they have a more massive expectation of everybody else because they're religious, and they have no peace, and they have no rest. And they wait for the opportunity to pounce on everybody who's not godly because that makes them feel better in their own insecurity because they're not at peace with themselves or with God. But to the man or the woman that is finally able to say, it is by Jesus' righteousness. It is by Jesus' blood. You see, we were singing about it. I wrote it down. Isaac, you are a genius. These are the songs we sing today. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Abram said, God, a miracle, baby, I don't know. I know you can do it because you're so good, and I know that you will take care of it for me. You're powerful enough. You're good enough. You're supreme enough. You're sufficient enough. I believe in you. Not me. It's not commending to us this text and these passages. is not commending to us heroic effort. It is commending to us the heroic, awesome, mighty God who goes to work on our behalf. The God who is my righteousness. And the more you walk in God being your righteousness, the more peace you will have with yourselves, with your friends, with your enemies, with your lots. God is my shield. God is my righteousness. Hmm. The final point is, God is my substitute. That was my introduction, now my sermon. Genesis 15, and look at verse 7. Now, the faster you listen, the faster I'll go, all right? We agreed? I love, there's two divine speeches, one on one night with the starry night. And now we're going to get a new divine speech on a new day that's going to also end at night. I love this. Make note of that. Two divine speeches on two different days. And he said to him, the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Make a note of this. No one has belonged to God who is not first a slave and in bondage. No one has ever belonged to God from birth. No one has ever been born free from bondage. We were all born in bondage and in slavery. And the reason why I know that is because Abram was born in bondage to in Ur of the Chaldeans. And that very phrase is used in both places where the Ten Commandments are. The same phrase, almost. Remember, he opens up the Decalogue with the Prologue, the Ten Commandments with the introduction. And the introduction to the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. I am the Lord who has delivered you. And all throughout the Bible, God is saying, if you want to consider yourself a part of my people and my community, then your confession must be that I was once in bondage. I was watching slavery, but God has brought me out. And what, what Abram has to remember is that he was once in bondage. Now, go to verse 8. Abram, again, questions in faith. He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove. And a young pigeon, and he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, here's what we have here. What we have is a bunch of animals, and God's like, go grab these animals and cut them in half. So what Abram does is he cuts them in half. Now, see that? That keeps us awake, amen? Hey, we're talking blood everywhere. Right? This is nasty stuff. And these innocent animals, clean animals, are being cut in half, and, and they're laid aside, and there's made an aisle. They're kind of like pews, kind of like our pews, which will soon be chairs. Amen. And half of the animal is over here, and half is over here. So everybody play like a half-dead animal right now. Just go. Okay, never mind. All right. And, and, and there they are. They're all dead. And we Americans and we modern people go, why? Why is there rows over here of dead animals and blood and rows over here of dead and animals' blood? Why is there an eye on? Here's the reason why. It's a covenant procedure. And in those days, when you made a covenant with somebody, you made a promise to them, an unbreakable covenant. You would kill an animal and put them on and then you would grab the other person's hand and you would walk in between down the row of these dead animals. And what you were saying is, if I break my covenant with you, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. 
In fact, I'm even giving you permission to come and curse me and cut me open if I don't keep my promise. That's how they did covenants back then. They should do marriages like that today, I think. Okay, anyways. (laughs) I think marriages might go better in America if they started cutting up some animals like, walk down that aisle, sweetheart. (laughs) Now say I do. Obviously, you know what's coming, that this is a picture of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his blood. But I'm not there yet. But it is very important that when the unclean birds try to come and mess with the gospel there, and they try to mess with the blood, Abram's chasing them away. And by the way, you've got to chase away defilements to the gospel, don't you know? Don't you know unclean theologies and ideas, particularly American ideas, come and try to defile the blood of Christ and being saved by grace? You've got to chase them away. You've got to say, no, 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 no. There is nothing else that puts me in relationship with God but blood. And any unclean thing that tries to mess with this gospel, I'm driving it away. You see, that's why we do communion. You know what communion is? It's driving the unclean ideas away. It's saying those stupid ideas about, you know, get a checkup from the neck up and success is the way and go do whatever you feel like doing and go and make a lot of money and get a bunch of stuff and that's the essence of life. Or religion, you got to do it by works. You got to be good enough. You got to say it right enough. Man, praise God that I don't base my sermons on how good I say things. Amen? Or how good I sing. Nobody can sing like Isaac. It's not performance, it's the blood. Abram chases it away. Nothing's going to mess with this. God's doing something. God's making a covenant with me. I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that covenant. Any covenant you keep, you're going to have to protect it. Do you know you've made a covenant in marriage? Do you know you've said to your husband or your wife, in sickness and in health, in poverty and in riches, in good times and in bad times, Till death do us part. And there's going to be unclean ideas that are going to come and try to mess with your marriage and your covenant that you've made with your wife or your husband. Some of you are single and you're not married yet. Are you ready to make that commitment to chase away anything from your relationship that is unclean? It's important. But I digress. Verse 12. As the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Darkness is obviously a picture of sin and terror and dread. God puts Abram into a deep sleep, and darkness comes. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's now talking about Israel when they went into bondage to Egypt and Pharaoh. It's a prophecy. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with the great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. By the way... The Amorites there were the people who dwelled in Palestine in that time who owned that land. And they were wicked people. And what God is saying is, I'm not unjust in kicking out other people and giving this land to my people. These people are going to prove that they're bad. And after 400 years, they'll be so bad that it's obvious that Joshua and Israel should destroy them. Let nobody tell you in this modern world that the land of Palestine doesn't belong to Israel because Israel is not good enough because other people had it first. Everybody is wicked. Nobody deserves that land. And if God wants to give it to Israel, well, so be it. Okay. That was a digression. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, now here's the key verses. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenseites, the Catamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Verses 17 and 18 are the key. Here's what's happened. God has made an unconditional, permanent covenant with Abram. It is a unilateral covenant. 
It's a covenant that God and God alone keeps. It's a covenant not based on performance. It's based on what God does. And what God does is he puts Abram to sleep when the judgment comes. He puts Abram to sleep when the curse comes. He puts Abram asleep. And then what happens is that torch and that smoke and fire pot dance between those pieces of the sacrifice. And any Israelite would know that the torch and the fire, the smoke represents God. Because when God led Israel out into the wilderness, he led them by a pillar of fire and by a cloud by day. They would know that it was a theophany of the very presence of God. And what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to keep both parts of the covenant. I, myself, am going to keep Abram's part and my part. He doesn't have to walk in the midst of sacrifice. He doesn't have to walk in the curse. He doesn't have to walk in the darkness. I'm going to take the curse. I'm going to take the judgment. I'm going to keep both of our parts, you see. Every Christian knows. That here we have a picture of the cross. You see, the first divine speech is about the nativity of Jesus. The second divine speech is about the cross of Jesus. The first one is about the birth of a miraculous son of God in the flesh. The second is about the son of God dying on behalf of human beings on a cross, spilling his blood. And when he was born in the nativity scene, when he was born in the manger, it was dark. When he died in the middle of the afternoon, smack dab around noon when he was dying on the cross what happened darkness came into the land an earthquake happened uh deep deep problems happened and we weren't there you want to know why we weren't there because we were asleep in god and god says to all believers i did it i did the whole thing god was our substitute god did it all And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 30, Come to me, all who, are la- who, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was the dancing torch, man. He was the smoke on that cross. He was God. Walking in the midst. You see, God is willing to walk in the midst of sacrifice in your place. God is willing to take the blood and the curse in your place. That is the Christian gospel, and that brings power to those who believe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is your substitute? Here's what Christianity is. In two words, it's substitutionary atonement. In four words, it's Jesus in my place. If somebody says, what is Christianity? You could say, it's substitutionary atonement. And if they go, what the heck is that? You say, it's Jesus in my place. And anyone who walks in that reality, who confesses, God is my substitute, God is my righteousness, God is my shield, anybody who walks it and their identity is shaped by that, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get rest. Now, God might not give you physical rest, and he might give you financial problems every now and then, and he might test your faith in real physical, practical ways. But when you walk in the gospel, you have rest, and it doesn't matter. And how about you? Would you rather have physical rest or spiritual rest? I'll take spiritual rest any day of the week. I'll lose sleep for it. I would lose sleep to put on my tongue and on my lips, God, you are my shield. I would lose sleep. I would lose energy. I would even give up half a 12-pack of Coca-Cola Classic (laughs) to say, God is my righteousness. I would give up hours and hours of sleep to be on my knees by the toilet in the bathroom in the middle of the night to say, God is my substitute. That is Christianity, and it is life, and it is power, and it will change your life. Do you believe? Believe in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Thank you, Father, that your oath, your covenant, your blood... Support us in the overwhelming flood. Thank you, God, that when all around our soul gives way, you are still our hope and our stay. Thank you, God, that Jesus was born of a virgin, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I thank you that he ascended into heaven and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I thank you because we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the Holy Spirit. God, I thank you that for those who confess these things and who walk in it, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they will be saved and they will find rest in a dry and thirsty land, God. I thank you that you are living water welling up to eternal life. May you be our drink. May you be our wine. May you be our bread. And may you give us the strength to chase anything away that Satan might send to distract us from the fact that you are a shield, righteousness, and substitute. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.